Okay, let's get started here. About four years ago, a very good friend of mine, we were meeting doing some work together. And he said, Jim, my daughter and her husband are having a lot of marriage problems. He said, can you recommend a good counselor for them? Now, he knew I was involved in kind of this one another counseling stuff. He just wasn't trying to offend me. He just, who who can help? And so the answer I gave to him at that time wouldn't be quite the same answer I would give him today. But by God's grace, it worked out. There's a good ending to the story. What I told him, I said, sure, I can give you the name, and I think I even did. But I said, but would you like me to spend some time with them? Would that be of any help? He said, really, you'd do that? Like, that was a, well, sure. I didn't have any great understanding of all that was going on. But he told me the main problem is that the guy, the husband, just wasn't, quote, alcoholic. He drank all the time. And he, he, he would drink. He'd get abusive, not physically, but verbally. And, and, and then he would sober up and be good for a couple weeks or a month or two and, and then be right back. And, and so I said, uh, I said, well, what do you think about it? I said, well, everybody in the family thinks that she should divorce him. She deserves better than this. Our daughter deserves to be happy. Now, the fellow that said this is a good Bible church, solid believer. But that was typical, isn't it, of a dad and a daughter. You just love your daughter. You don't want her to suffer. So I said, well, I'm willing to help, but can we just talk about that for just a minute, just between you and me? And so I said, biblically, does your daughter have grounds to divorce him? He goes, well, let me think about that. So we talked about that for a while, and he came to the conclusion, no, I, I guess you're right, she doesn't. He said, that's bad, isn't it? Yeah. He said, so if you and I can agree, just between the two of us, that she doesn't have grounds to divorce, I'm willing to spend some time. And, and so he said, okay. So that started the whole process. I met with the couple. I won't tell you the whole story because it it took a ton of time. It took, you know, I had to be away from home some. I had to interrupt work some. I had there was time. One of the times I met with the fella, he'd been drinking the whole night. I think I might have shared this part before earlier in the class, one of the classes. He'd been drinking the whole weekend. And we had a scheduled time because we we're going through Ephesians together. That's one of the things I do. I know you know I like Ephesians, and we're going through it. And so he came on this Monday afternoon to meet, go through Ephesians, even though he'd been drinking all weekend, but he'd sobered up. And I said, uh, "Good to see you." And sat down. We opened our Bibles and got into Ephesians for about forty-five minutes. And he stopped. He said, "Wait a minute, Jim." I said, "I mean, I know you know I've been drinking all weekend." I mean, why haven't you reprimanded me? Why haven't you told me how wrong that is? And I mean, isn't that what you're supposed to do? And I said, well, does that help? He said, well, not really. I know why I did it. I know I shouldn't drink this much. I know it's wrong. 
said, okay, well, why, why do you think you did it? He said, I don't know. So we talked out there for a minute and said, you, you like doing it, don't you? I mean, you wanted to drink. I mean, you didn't do it because nobody was making you drink. You wanted the alcohol. You wanted the feeling that it gave you. You wanted to do it. He said, well, that's exactly right. I said, well, I can't fight that by a rebuke, but maybe if you want God more, that's a good place to start. So well, can we get back to Ephesians? He goes, okay. And I sort of turned a little bit of a corner with him because I wasn't doing data gathering. I wasn't doing root cause analysis. Now, he'd been to AA four times, a graduate of AA, over and over and over. Well, Karen knows because I got a text from his wife probably three or four months ago. This was three years after this all started, whatever, telling me about, how they were so excited they were going to be sharing their testimony at their church on the coming Sunday morning in front of a couple thousand people about what God had done in their marriage. And that, I mean, that, that's what we're talking about here. We're just talking about believers. I did nothing that any one of you could not have done. I mean, you all could have done exactly what I did. I didn't. What I did did not require formal, formal counseling training. I'm not certified, as you know. I'm just a Christian, I know, with a tie. I'm just a believer. Just a believer. Yes, I was willing to spend some time, but, but as we'll learn tonight as we talk about that, I think as believers we're sort of compelled to do that. I think God stirs us up to do that. That's what believers are supposed to do. Why we don't do it enough, I don't know. We'll explore that a little bit tonight. But the real difference in all of that wasn't me. It was a biblical commitment of the wife and the dad and the family ultimately to say, we're going to stand by what's right before the Lord and try to bear this marriage burden. So, Family, friends, their church got involved. Now, they were committed to do that regardless of whether he stopped drinking or not. Think about that. How popular would the following books be? Would you buy a book by the title of How to Be Long-Suffering in a Bad Marriage if Your Spouse Never Changes? Many people are doing that. Wonderfully so for the sake of our Lord. But it's not a big seller, is it? How about how to be merciful and loving to your children if they don't behave? Or how to have peace with God even if you never resolve a conflict with a good friend? No, those are not bestsellers because we want change. We want our needs met. We want our spouses fixed, our children to behave, and we want our Sinful friends, you know, to repent. We want, and that, and we want it now. And and those are, and by the way, those are good desires. Nothing wrong with that. But as we've explored during this class, the uh, the glory of God and His providential plans don't always align with the time frame for the changes that we want and desire.
Indeed, what we talked about, and Joy and I talked a little bit about this before, the very trials that God puts us through are often what he's using, almost always what he's using to transform us to be like his son. For his glory and for his purposes in the progress of the gospel. So during these 12 classes, tonight's our 12th class, as you know, it's been my desire to help put together a framework for us to think biblically so we can address these kinds of things that come up just organically, naturally, as we live out in the body of Christ. How do we think about these things and who we call and why do we want to go here? Why do our friends want to go here to counselors? Why are they tugged there instead of here? And why are we reluctant here to do things that are going on over here? And so this is a framework, a way to think about it. And tonight, we'll put the final piece of the puzzle together. But first, let's read through our first four building blocks initially. Number one, foundation belief number one, a Christian has been given life in Christ. Resurrection life in the Son, Zoe, is fundamentally different than the experiences that encompass our daily norms as we breathe in and out or refer to as life under the Son, Suke. A Christian has been given life in Christ. Number two, a Christian has been given light and sight in Christ. Resurrection life in the Son, Zoe, is revealed truth that leads to salvation. It's received as a gift and revealed by the Holy Spirit. We were blind, but now we see. This revelation cannot be gained by aptitude, intelligence, academics, a unique curriculum, degrees, certifications, Discovery via the rigor of the scientific method or the will of man. A Christian has been given light and sight in Christ. Foundation belief three. And remember, we started, we didn't start with three. We started with one and two. But we've said that three is kind of a place that we start because pain is real. And so we look back at one and two to build a framework to thinking about three. A Christian understands and interprets pain differently in Christ. Generally, we source both pain and remedy from a life under the sun, horizontal, suke perspective. However, as we are his children, no pain is allowed without the awareness of our Father. Invariably, the Holy Spirit drives our eyes and attention to Christ Jesus in the vertical so that we experience a better outcome, a hope of a future that doesn't disappoint, and in the present, the nearness of God. A better outcome than just having something fixed. Because stopping drinking, as the story I mentioned, that's a good outcome. We know that. But if, if it's just behavioral change we want... There's all kinds of ways to get that. But the Lord doesn't want our obedience, does he? 
He wants our hearts. He doesn't want, he wants our obedience. Better say that the proper way. He doesn't just want blind obedience as a, as a uh, law. He doesn't want us just to fulfill the law. He wants to obey him from our hearts. Still haven't said that right, but you know what I mean. Number four, Christians are able. This is where we've been the last two weeks. Christians are able to bear one another's burdens as a result of our adoption, our adoption into the Christian family, our imparted gifts and revealed word of God by which we bless each other as we minister Christ to one another in the communal life of the body of Christ. Christians are able. This was dealing with the issue of competence. And so I have just two slides, just not to spend much time reviewing, but just as we set the stage for number five, we presented this matrix last week, and we talked about the differences between Christian and biblical counseling, this world, and the body of Christ, the one another world. And I hope it's a helpful slide. I hope you had a chance to reflect on it. We also, in a sort of a a hurried way, talked about some of the tensions that I feel within this biblical counseling world that most of you know I have a lot of affection for. And I was teaching material out of that group. And I still like so much of that material that I get. And even it was mentioned last week that that Ed Welch's book on depression is, is, is a wonderful book and has been so helpful for Christians dealing with this thing called depression. But it, it's just critically important. The reason this whole class has come about is because I haven't been able to land here. You understand that? Those of you who've been in a class with me before, you understand I can't plant my flag here. I want to plant my flag over here. I'm, I'm kind of hoping they'll come over here too. And so I hurried through this, but to just give you a little bit of a, a more of a taste of, of even how the very best of the counseling world still mixes that language in. This is straight from the CCF, Biblical Counseling Hall of Fame, wonderful believers. I want to read it. In saying all of this, I don't want to imply that every person is completely competent to help anyone and everyone. There are people with unique gifts for interpersonal ministry, just as there are people with unique gifts for public preaching and teaching. All of us are in different stages of life with varying degrees of training, life experience, and case wisdom. That means that there are some who will function well in a more formal capacity and will engage in formal counseling. So, first of all, do you see the mixture of some biblical language in there, but some things you're saying, wait a minute. Do you see? Give me an example of something that's more counseling terminology related in that statement. That you would press something in this statement up here that looks like it's more counseling language versus 
biblical language. Yeah, it's a great example. Case wisdom. Now, what's people aren't cases to us, are they? They're fellow believers. We're not putting together a case history on somebody. We don't have case notes. They're just believers. But it gets woven into it. It, 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 And and there's a bunch of other things. Formal capacity and informal counseling. I mean, what's that? Formal is paid counseling. Now, that's reinforced down below. Since church... now, Now, as I read this, think about the mixture of since churches should be involved in counseling, well, that's good. Biblical equipping and training is needed. And that is exactly what we seek to do at CCF as we restore Christ to counseling and counseling to the church. It's apparently needed. But this is not the only way CCF understands and uses the word counseling. We use it much more broadly. When we say counseling, we do mean formal counseling, but we also find other words that capture it, words that express the fuller meaning of counseling, like discipleship, informal helping relationships, one anothering, growth in grace, Conformity to the image of Christ, sanctification, change, growth in godliness, the fruit of the Spirit, faith and obedience, and increase in wisdom. I mean, those are wonderful things. Those are great things. Since this is what we also mean when we say counseling, then the church should absolutely be involved in counseling. Also, as a side. <laughs> Robert, I love you. You you catch it. But you, you see... You see how that you've got a, a mixture, and, and Steve has pounded on me like this for, I don't know, 20 years. I'm just so slow to get any of this stuff. It's just, it's just so bad, and I'm going to give everybody a chance to repent more and more, because I, I did it this week even. I mean, it's just so discouraging. So what do I want out of these guys? Well, I, I like... The fact that they're writers. I mean, I would love Dave Pallison and Ed Welch to become pastors and teachers in a church over here. I'd like them to be rightly dividing the word of truth. I mean, where would they be a hundred years ago if they didn't have all their training? Wouldn't that be wonderful? Because they're great teachers. They're good communicators. Um, and, And their material, by the way, is still of great value. I find value in it. Because nobody else, very few other people are writing on these kinds of things. But mixed in with their content is their practice of professional counseling. And they link them together inside this ministry umbrella. And that's just wrong. It's just wrong. I mean, nobody's teaching is perfect. We can pick on their teaching and look at the... And and that's okay. I mean, they could pick on mine and find plenty of stuff to say. But when they put their professional counseling side and they and they're trying to move it into this and we get confused, I it it's just that's why, according to Joy, as we were talking before, and that's why I'm trying to do this for us to think more biblically about all this. So I would tell them, Stop counseling. Come over to the come over to the other side. You know, join us in the body of Christ. And they're in the body of Christ. 
but, but more fully join us. Okay, Foundation Belief 5. Anybody have a guess? Bernie alluded to it. Anybody have a guess? What would be the possible subject matter on number five? Karen knows because she's seen the slide. All right. Well, here it is. Foundation belief number five. Christians are recognized by their love for each other. Christians desire to bear one another's burdens as a result of our new life in Christ. The world, our flesh, and the evil one arouse competitive affections, don't they? As we cry out for his mercy, power, and love, the Spirit of Christ produces a willingness to die to self, compelling us to love and live for one another. Let me read it one more time. Christians are recognized by their love for each other. Christians desire to bear one another's burdens as a result of our new life in Christ. The world, our flesh, and the evil one arouse competitive affections. As we cry out for his mercy, power, and love, the Spirit of Christ produces a willingness to die to self, compelling us to love and live for one another. You like it? Well, let's... Talk about it a little bit, shall we? Because as we have been given new life in Christ, and as we become a new creature in Christ, we also have a new commandment. The compelling nature of God's love, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another. Even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. That's from John 13, 34 and 35. And then he goes on in John 15, 12 and 13. This is my commandment, that you love one another just as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that one lay down his life for his friends. Now, this was part of that upper room discourse, right? John 13 through 17. Although he may have been outside of the upper room for part of that, because it said they might have left, but you know what I mean. Now, what happened right before these verses in John 13? What was our Lord doing when they entered into the upper room? What was he doing initially? That's exactly right, Joy. He was washing their feet. He was demonstrating what it meant to be a servant. You said it right before class tonight. Really, Jim, isn't it about serving others? Yes. Loving others. Laying down our lives for others. And so, that's what it's about. But we're we're tugged, aren't we, between that and... Playing golf three times a week. Or fill in the blank with whatever affections drive you in this suke horizontal world. What is it that you get your comfort from? What is it that you love? I love golf. I, 
We had something else. We had a vacation thing, a Disney World thing up there. You could put a fishing pole, hunting and camping. But it's the week of the Masters Golf Tournament, and I love golf, and so I decided to go with golf. And if somebody calls me and needs any kind of ministry this weekend during the Masters Golf Tournament on TV, I mean, Karen's just going to have to take a message. Right? I mean, that's biblically right, right? Honey, tell them I'm tied up, I'm busy working on something. But isn't that how we are? Oh, they need, they need some help. Oh, somebody needs some ministry. But, but we, we're scheduled our movie night tonight. I mean, we're, we're going out of town this weekend. We've got a vacation schedule. We, you know. I also use this because I got a call from an elder of a local church. Not here. It's about seven, eight years ago. He said, Jim, can you give me the name of that biblical counselor guy that we heard you talk about before? So I said, sure, gave him the name. <clears throat> I said, well, but what's going on? He said, oh, Jim, you don't want to know. This marriage problem. I mean, my wife and I, I won't use their names. But my wife and I spent two hours with this couple. It's a mess. They need professional help. I said, well, okay. Why do you say that? And I walked him through my little poorly outlined, cause, you know, over the phone. And finally, he's, I said, so do you think, you know, what did the Puritans do? What did people do 200 years ago? I mean, finally he said, oh, I see what you're saying. I guess what I'm really saying, Jim, is it's not that I'm not able to do it. I just, I just don't have the time. I'm just too busy. That's, it, he may have been. I mean, I don't know if he's too busy because of this. I know he'd retired then. And I know he did this three times a week. I know that. Because he's invited me to do it with him. Okay, um, and he may not do that now. It, I can't judge his time. I will say this, that one anothering takes time. It is a commitment of, of this, washing feet, dying to yourself for others, as opposed to this. And you have, I mean, there's nothing wrong with that. But only, only you know if it's where, where your heart is on it. And only God can direct you as to how to use your time. So the reason that we're talking about God's love as our final point is that this, all of this is really not about curriculum. It's not about as I said earlier, it's not about a Cliff Notes version so you can be a better counselor. That's not what it's about. It's about loving God and loving others. Well, the Word of God gives us a little more conviction here in 1 John 4, verses 19 through 21. We love because He first loved us starts with God's love, doesn't it? If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For the one who does not love his brother, whom he has seen, cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, that the one who loves God should love his brother also. Brotherly love 
is evidence of our vertical love with God. We can say we love God. Who, how do we see that? This is how we see it. We wash feet. We spend time with couples whose marriages are crumbling. We come alongside people who are grieving over the loss of a spouse. We come along parents whose kids are out of control and we love on them and encourage them. We bear burdens. We come along people who are so down and discouraged because of, of the pain of life. We, a Job kind of situation. And we give biblical one anothering. We, we don't come along like Job's friends. We come along as fellow believers. And we bear their burdens biblically. Just because we're believers and we can do that. But it's hard, isn't it? I mean, we've all talked about the tug between the golf club and the foot washing. I think there's a lot of reasons we struggle, but I'm going to suggest one tonight that is relevant, very relevant to the counseling world and who we call. And it is content that is delivered by mainly these guys in the Christian counseling world, the integrationist world, these guys get this next thing. But we have to explore it, and you'll see why. This is the fuel for the therapeutic gospel. Do you remember the therapeutic gospel? We had that in one of the earlier lessons. It's the gospel that says that God wants us to be happy. Yes, to have our needs met and especially be happy in ourselves, to be fulfilled. The prosperity gospel says God wants you to be rich and healthy. But a sister, close sister to that is the therapeutic gospel. God wants you to be happy and to have and to feel good about yourself. Well... Where does that come from? What commandment is the foremost of all? The foremost is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Well, you go to a good Bible church here. In fact, everybody, you don't all go to the same church, I know, but looking around, you all go to good Bible teaching churches. And you know what this verse means. How do many Christians take that verse? Yes, you have to love yourself first. And we laugh about that, but Karen and I were at a funeral at a local Bible church with a Dallas Seminary pastor. Not We'd never been to this church before. This was 10 years ago, maybe, eight years, seven, eight years ago, somewhere. And um, this was a, a lady that passed away, that, uh, and we 
we, I had been involved with the fella because his wife had cancer and because I'd lost a wife to cancer. I was said, would you go minister to Bill? No, that wasn't his name. We'd go minister to Bill because he's going through a tough time. His wife has terminal cancer, and I know you've been there. Okay, I did that. So we spent time together, went to the funeral, and the pastor stood up at the very beginning as part of the talking about this, his wife and say her name was Barbara for the sake of discussion. Well, Barbara finally had peace with God when she finally learned to love herself. We praise God that Barbara, she never used to love herself, but when she started to love herself and to see how unique she was, and then she, he started to talk about how unique she was, what a special person she was. Nothing about who she was in Christ and seeing herself that way. It was self-love. I, I was shocked. We don't have time to do justice to explaining all the reasons why people take this this way. And, and it's not a good point tonight to get into great details on the right biblical exegesis of it. However... Let me give just, I will recommend, John Piper did a two-part series on Love Your Neighbor that you can just type in John Piper, Love Your Neighbor as Yourself, and and you'll get a two-part wonderful series on it. And part of his series on part two, actually it was the end of part one, he he talked about this illustration of of these two golden chains of these two commandments of loving God and loving one another. And he pointed to Matthew 22, starting with, I think, verse 35 is, is the second love one another. But, but how verse 40 says, On these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. So, my point is, for us to understand what it means to love your neighbor as yourself, and that started with Leviticus. It's repeated five or six times in in the New Testament. It is the second command. For us to understand that, the first thing that Piper wanted us to understand is we can't separate these two from one another. That loving God, in fact, he clearly says loving God is preeminent. We, we love God first, and out of that love of God in us, we're able to pour that out. You all know that. We've talked about that. It always starts vertical and moves into the horizontal. So that's the first thing. The second thing that, that Piper wanted us to understand is, is, that, is that loving yourself, what that really means as yourself. Anybody? What, what does that mean? There's anything wrong with self-love? And yet, I mean, we feed ourselves, don't we? Isn't that a form of love? We clothe ourselves? I mean, is it wrong to eat? Is hunger wrong? No. It's See, it's natural. It's normal. Let me quote what Piper says. Now, Jesus says, I start with this self-love. This is what I know about you. This is common to all people. You don't have to learn it. 
It comes with your humanity. My father created it. In and of itself, it is good. To hunger for food is not evil. To want to be warm in the winter is not evil. To want to be safe in a crisis is not evil. To want to be liked by others is not evil. This was a defining human trait before the fall of man into sin. And in its, and is not evil in itself. Whether it has become evil in your life will be exposed as you hear and respond to Jesus' commandment. He commands, as you love yourself, so love your neighbor. Which means, as you long for food when you are hungry, so long to feed your neighbor when he is hungry. As you long for nice clothes for yourself, so long for nice clothes for your neighbor. As you work for a comfortable place to live, so desire a comfortable place to live for your neighbor. As you seek friends for yourself, so be a friend to your neighbor. As you want your life to count and be significant, so desire that same significance for your neighbor and so on and so forth. In other words, make your self-seeking the measure of your self-giving. Now, this is threatening, isn't it? Because the natural response would be, but wait a minute, people are going to take advantage of me. I mean, what you're really saying if I take this, that, that we need to be devoted to pursuing the happiness of others, but how do we, how do we protect our own happiness if we're doing that? How do, how do we do that? Well, you can read a popular series of books called Boundaries, and it will teach you how to do that. But as you know, I don't highly recommend that series of books. But that's what they address, how to protect yourself from dying to others too much. Because you don't want to do that. Like that's a real problem for us, isn't it? I mean, anybody, any of you, you think you're dying to yourself too much? You need, you need some boundaries to make sure you're not overwhelmed by giving too much of your time and energy and love to other people? No. No, that's why there's the necessity of the two commandments together. You see, you can't separate them. The first commandment is the first commandment for a reason. Let me finish with what Piper says. I think that is exactly the threat that Jesus wants us to feel until we realize that this, exactly this, is why the first commandment is the first commandment. It's the first commandment that makes the second doable and takes away the threat that the second commandment is really the suicide of our own happiness. The first commandment is the basis of the second. The second commandment is the visible expression of the first. Which means, before you make your own self-seeking the measure of your self-giving, make God the focus of your self-seeking. Does that remind you of some verse in Matthew? Seek ye first the kingdom of God. 
Let me repeat this. John Piper's wonderful words. Before you make your own self-seeking the measure of your self-giving, make God the focus of your self-seeking. This is the point of the first commandment. Now, this is complicated. I mean, I can't tell you what's good for you or not. I can't make... You and the Lord have to work all that out. This is a walk by faith. This is not curriculum. This is what the Christian walks about, loving God and loving others. But Piper finishes by saying this, loving God sustains us through all the joy and pain and perplexity and uncertainty of what loving our neighbor should be. When the sacrifice is great, we remember that his grace is sufficient. When the fork in the road of love is unmarked, we remember with joy and love that his grace is sufficient. When we're distracted by the world and our hearts give way temporarily to selfishness and we are off the path, we remember that God alone can satisfy and we repent and love his all-sufficient grace even more. I know this is hard to read, but I like it. There is no biblical basis for self-esteem, self-love, self-acceptance, self-confidence, self-forgiveness, self-assertion, proper self-image, self-actualization, or any of the other self-isms advocated by the worldly system of psychology. It is not about me. It is about loving God and loving others. Well, how do we do that? Everybody says, okay, that's good. I'm with you so far. I know I need to repent. We've got about 15 minutes left in our hour together. So what does that look like? Well, this was our belief. So this is our desire. I think it's the desire of all believers. We want to do that. We know we have this competitive affections. So let's look at what does this mean? As we cry out for his mercy, power, and love, the Spirit of Christ produces a willingness to die to self, compelling us to love and live for one another. Crying out for mercy. Well, that's part of that is repentance, isn't it? Isn't that a natural part of the Christian walk? Prayerfully, daily, hourly, every five minutes for us often, Lord, I repent for my self-centeredness. This walk through this world for me has been a walk of repentance. I, I constantly find myself, you know, tugged back here, tugged back here. I have often been close to hanging a shingle to become a professional counselor. I've been encouraged to do that by many people. Jim, you should be certified. You should do this for a living. Oh, you're, you're just so good at it. You just love people. I mean, how horrible that would have been. By God's grace, I am just a Christian with a tie, and I am glad to be that. Glad to be that. And God's provided. People say, but, but Jim, I mean, I, I, I had one of our dear 
Christian young lady who's a biblical counselor say, Jim, I agree with everything you're saying, but, but this is how I make a living. This is my life. This is how I make money. How am I going to live? And I've just had to say, look, I can't answer that for you. I mean, I can't. Um, God will have to direct your path. I, I, just, I just wish you weren't doing that. Well, I think a place to start is that we cry out. We pray. So open your Bibles to Ephesians and look at chapter 1 for a minute. I've gone through these verses with so many people at so many different times, and we're not gonna, I'm not going to exegete them tonight. I couldn't do that. Not that good a teacher. I'm more of an encourager kind of person. And praise the Lord for good teachers who can take these verses. But let me read these verses. And as I read them, we're going to read Paul's prayers. His prayer at the end of chapter 1. And his prayer at the end of chapter 3. And see... What Paul is praying for, for the church at Ephesus. And see how that might relate for what we need regarding power and love. Starting with verse 17 of chapter 1. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe. These are in accordance with the working of the strength of his might, which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. And then let's look at Paul's prayer at the end of chapter 3, starting with verse 14. Ephesians 3, verse 14, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name, that he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in the inner man, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge, surpasses certification, surpasses credentials, academic degrees. Nothing wrong with those, but the love of Christ surpasses Knowledge that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. A call 
to one another starts with a cry to the Father. It's a good place to start. You want to know how to do, quote, one another ministry? You want the Cliff Notes version of it? Okay, start repenting of how much you love yourself in the world and start crying out to God for his power and his love to work through you. That's a good place to start. This is, this is just... This is just from the word. And then start doing it. And scripture, you've seen this slide before. You saw it earlier. I mean, scripture gives us. We could spend a lot of time on these one another in verses. And it's worthwhile. Don't get me wrong. This class wasn't designed. Some of you came into this initially hoping maybe we would spend more time here. It's, it's valuable. But without this... I don't think you have a framework to be energized to do this. But now you could start looking at the word of God going, oh, man, okay, I am able. I am able. And, and, and I know that I've got two big commands, loving God first. I need to seek him out. So I'm going to cry out to the Father. And I'm going to ask him to, for power of the Spirit and, and for his love to start moving into people's lives as he would direct and, and, and I tell you, it is an exciting, joyful, energizing thing to do. Do we counsel one another well? That's not one of the one another's. There is a biblical word counsel, right? Though we talked about that a few weeks ago. Those of you who have the handout on what counseling means biblically. Be an advisor, right? So, yeah, by the way. Somebody needs counsel on what house to buy or a job that they're looking to take or, or maybe what school or college to attend. That, my friends, is good biblical counseling. But it's not all this other stuff. That's not biblical counseling. This is biblical counseling. And it's so much richer. And we don't have to stumble over the word counsel. We don't have to, oh, I'm not trained. I don't want to do counseling. There's some liability. There's, because we know what that word means. And, and to Dave Pallison's credit, at a talk two years ago, he said, you know, perhaps we should get rid of that C word when we're talking to churches about counseling. Amen, Dave. But he said it was because it has a lot of this type of stuff related to it. And so here they are trying to get this into here, but they're pulling language and terminology from here to put it into there, and, and, and it just doesn't work. So, to find the word biblically right to begin with, Dave, that's a good place to start. If the word is sufficient, that's a good place to start. And maybe I'll have a chance to talk to Dave about it, because I love him as a believer. And I hurried through these last week, but I put them up here again. I'm not going to go through them again because I didn't go through them last week. But as you go through the scriptures, when I talk about one anothering, yes, there's 70 plus one anothering terms. But there's a lot of verses that that talk about um, here, like making mention of you in my prayers. That doesn't specifically say praying for one another, but it's something that we do, right? So it doesn't have to say the two words one another to be a one anothering thing to do. 
So, I'm a prisoner of Christ Jesus for the sake of you Gentiles. Paul's words. Well, he's suffering for one another, isn't he? So, think about that as you read the word of God. And I just put these there so to, to let you look at you know, what's in Ephesians. Sometimes it says, be kind to one another, be tenderhearted to one another, forgive one another. All those are in there. But sometimes for the building up of the body of Christ, edifying one another, right? Well, I need to finish with this slide. Many of you who've been in one of my classes know how much I love these verses. I call this slide, Zoe meets one another. When I was reading through these verses, probably seven, eight years ago, I just, when I got down to verse 25, I just, it just hit me between the eyes. So look at him with me. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. The word live is the verb form for Zoe, Zao. For me to live, to Zoe, to Zao, to, to be alive. We understand Zoe means that it's our new life in Christ. Life in the Son, in Jesus. That starts when we are born again. That's when Zoe starts for us. Zoe isn't just heaven. It is that. But it's now. Because we are in the Son now. And nothing will separate us from his love. For me to live, Zao is Christ, and to die is gain. Well, we all know what to die is gain is. I, I knew that. But look what it means to live is Christ. What it means to Zoe. But if I'm to live on in the flesh, this will mean first fruitful labor for me. Well, that's interesting. Labor. Fruitful labor. We could talk about the fruit of the Spirit if you want. Fruitful labor. And I do not know which to choose, but I'm hard-pressed from both directions, having the desire to depart and be with Christ. That would be to die. For that is very much better, yet to remain on in the flesh is more necessary. So this is the second part. For your sake. Not for him, but for their sake. For others. Convinced of this. I know that I will remain and continue with y'all. There's a good plural. For your progress and joy in the faith. To live spiritually. To live spiritually. To be alive spiritually. To have that joy of the presence of the Lord in you. To experience that nearness of God that we long to, that that we find lacking so much at times when we're when we're dry and things are kind of dead and we're and we're down and things aren't going the way we want to to be alive spiritually is to be engaged in the progress and joy in the faith of others. Well, who needs the joy of the Lord? These people do. We do in the midst of pain and trials. The joy of the Lord is our strength. That'd be a good title for a book, wouldn't it? A bestseller, right? How to have the joy of the Lord 
when no problems are fixed and nothing has changed in anybody. You're not going to be a good counselor selling that either because you mean you're just offering me the joy of the Lord? This is 150 bucks an hour and then you're going to say you're going to the joy of the Lord. That's all you can do for me. You know, my husband's an alcoholic. Can't you fix that? Progress. It's used one other time in Philippians talking about earlier in chapter one about how they were together partakers in the progress of the gospel. Isn't that sweet? The progress of the gospel, the joy in the Lord, engaged with each other, serving, loving, caring. In a way, it does bring us right back to our very first thought, doesn't it? For us to live is Christ. So if you want to live, live the spiritual life with the joy of the Lord and the nearness of God, then don't get caught up with whether you're competent enough. Be happy that you're just a Christian with a tie or without a tie. Either way, repent of your self-oriented nature. All of us need to do that all the time. Cry out to the Father to give us his power and his love. And and be open. Let the Spirit use you in the body of Christ for his glory. Let's pray. Father, even right now, I just repent of, of what I know is a life that's too consumed with my own pleasures, my own comforts, how much I protect that. And I can only assume that everyone here can say the same thing. So, Father, create in us a, a clean conscience. Help us to, to walk and abide in your love. And, Father, I pray that I might know that power that is that resurrection power that Paul prayed for in Ephesians 1. And I might know the extent of your love more in my life that Paul prayed for in Ephesians 3, that that your son Jesus might dwell in my heart more richly, more intimately. Father, I know he's there. Um, I praise you for that, that your spirit convicting me of, of in, in wonderfully um, comforting me with with his presence. But I long to know him better and to know you better. And I pray that out of that, out of that knowing you better and loving you more, that, that your love would flow through me, that I might be able to say, as as the Apostle Paul said earlier in Philippians, how he longed for the Philippians with the affection of Christ Jesus in him. Father, may it not be my love, my fleshly love, which is lacking. May it be your love, the very love of your Son, Jesus Christ, in me. And may you stir me up and all of us up to love you more and to love one another more. For your glory, in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, amen.